Morning, Grace Church. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of James, the first chapter, verses 1 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Good morning. So if you have read the Bible or been a Christian for any length of time, you know that God works in ways that confound the wisdom of the wise. He, he uses uneducated men to be his disciples and followers. If, uh, if, uh, if strategy and war would call for 10,000, he, he gives deliverance through 300. Uh, and I and I just say all that to say I'm never quite sure whether me coming up in front of you and saying I think I think this sermon is really really important for all of us because I, I think this one is but I'm never quite sure if I should say that if that's better or if I should say I don't know this feels like a bomb <laughs> I think it's true but you know I don't see this going anywhere. Uh, it sort of seems like if if it were the second, you'd be in better shape. I don't know, but but here's my my point through a little bit of bad pastor humor. Uh, I think this is one of the more significant sermons I've given in a long time, and I invite you to join, even as I pray that God would use this. Uh, there's suffering among us, and this is a passage for sufferers. So let me ask you some questions. There's like Six of them. And if I don't ask the exact right question for you, fill that question in yourself. You're running late for a meeting with a friend and you notice the traffic is completely stopped in front of you. What happens in your heart? You're 24 hours out from vacation. The vacation you've been planning for months and looking forward to desperately. You need it. Feel you need it badly. You're exhausted and a few days off the grid is just what you need. You're packing up the last bag or two and in the next room you hear one of your children vomiting. (laughs) What's your first thought? Imagine you're going about your day and everything is happening mostly according to plan. It's a pretty good day. Phone rings. It's the doctor's office. The results came back. You have cancer. What's your response? Kids, you lied to your parents, telling them you were sick so that you could get out of school or schoolwork for the day. In the middle of the day, your best friend texts you to see if you want to go skiing that evening. How does that make you feel? You've been sharing the gospel with your neighbor for months, and without giving a reason, he says he doesn't want to talk about this anymore. What happens inside? Life as a whole. How about this one? Life as a whole. Seems like one big trial. It's not what you were hoping for. You you are not where you wanted to be. You don't have the job you pictured yourself in. Your church isn't nearly as healthy as you think it should be. You're not sure where you fit in in your church. Your health isn't great. On top of that, none of your relationships have the kind of meaning or depth that they're supposed to have. What do you imagine in that situation being your dominant emotion? You've prayed for God's help for the same thing for months, but without any apparent response. Same thing. It's a deep need you feel. God seems silent. How do you process that? 
You're on the mission field. You've poured the last five years of your life into sharing the gospel with the people who had never heard it before. You've endured sickness, persecution, and rejection, but you've remained faithful and steadfast, and the gospel seems to be taking root. Then a legal technicality forces you to leave the country. How do you feel about that? Living in a fallen world means that trials are inevitable. The question is not whether we'll face these kinds of trials or other kinds, but how we will respond to them when we do. Without any explanation, James opens his letter with a command to have one main response to every kind of trial that we face. Looking closely at his prescribed response, the single response is the heart of this text and the heart of this sermon. It is my earnest hope and prayer that with the Spirit's help, I will be able to explain what James meant and why he meant it. And on the other side of that, it is my earnest hope and prayer that the Spirit would move all of us a bit closer to full obedience to his command and full appreciation for the reasoning behind it. That is, I've asked God all week to be pleased to help us see and respond to the trials in our life differently than we normally would. That we would respond to them exactly as James calls us to in light of this text. Let's pray. God, it's... It's certainly humbling and very much overwhelming to know the kinds of trials that I know that some people are going through or have gone through or anticipate going through and make it seem so simple and and offer this passage, which is just so straightforward and seems to have none of the depth of pain that many of us feel in it. It just tells us so simply. Count it all joy because you're doing some stuff. (laughs) It it just feels so simple, too simple. It feels childlike for adult problems. It feels like a childlike answer for adult problems. But that's my wisdom. (laughs) That's, That's my thinking. That's my reasoning. That's my common sense. I pray this morning that for those in this room and those listening from home who have the same type of reasoning and common sense and wisdom, I pray that your word would smash it. We don't, we don't need what we think we need. We need what you tell us we need. Would you come upon us in power this morning to bring the kind of healing to the hurting that they need, not the kind that they want? We love you, and we thank you that that's just the kind of God you are through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so I know you just heard the the passage, and it's on the screen behind me, and I want it to stay there. And hopefully you've read this this week as well, or leading up to this sermon, but I want you to do something. I want you to forget it. (laughs) Just forget it for a minute, because I think the way we can feel this most deeply, appreciate it most fully, and then apply it most completely, is if we let it unfold in our minds, just the way that that it's that James wrote this. I, I want you to forget that you know where this is going and just come with me through this passage. Just term by term, word by word, reasoning by reasoning, 
because I think that's where the fullness of the power of this passage comes from. It has two main parts. Both are very simple and very straightforward. The first part is verse 2. James issues a pretty radical and extremely counterintuitive command. Okay, just forget you know what that is. The command is just just realize that's what's coming. And then in the second part, in 3 and 4, he gives the reasoning behind it. Okay, that's that's the simple structure of the, the passage and this sermon. Grace, if we are to obey a command that God calls us to, which, as we see, as we're about to see, is the exact opposite of what we're inclined to, to do and the exact opposite of what almost everyone around us does and the exact opposite of what almost everything around us calls us to and models, we'd better make sure that we grasp both the command and its rationale really, really well. So beginning with the command, let's get our heads around this. And to do that, there's six terms. The command has six terms, and we're going to look at them in order. Forget you know the command already. Come with me here. We all assign value to the things in our life. I want you to draw something, anything to mind. Jody's walker. (laughs) Draw it to mind. Draw something in your life, some person, some place, some thing, some event, some habit, some routine. Draw it to mind And believe me when I tell you that by God's design, you have assigned value to that thing. Whatever it is, if it's in your life, you have assigned a certain measure of value to that. You can't not. That's how God made the world. We do it with people and things and experiences alike. We then get this grace. This is how you work. This is how I work. We then respond to the various things we encounter in light of or in response to the value that we've assigned to them. That's how life works. That's how you work and I work. For instance, if you assign a high value to entertainment, it's going to be important to you to live near entertainment options to spend your time and money on. Or if you assign high value to physical beauty, you will invest in certain workouts and clothes and food and makeup and things like that. Or if you assign high value to sports, your parents see it all the time, You're going to be willing to drive your kids great distances and give up weekends and miss other things to instill or pass that value on. Conversely, if you assign a low value to something like exercise or Bible reading or care for the vulnerable or artistic endeavors, it won't take much. In fact, you'll generally want to avoid those things. You get the idea. We determine the value of something and then we respond to it accordingly. The key, then, is to assign the right value to the things in our life so that we can respond to them rightly. The way we assign right value to something is to assign it the value that God has given it. You with me, Grace? God gives things the value that they have, and it is our job to come to understand that value and join God in giving that to whatever it is in our lives. And we know the value God has given something two things, to anything, exclusively through his word. So when James begins his commands by telling his readers to count something, that's the first term, he is, under the inspiration of God, telling them to assign a particular value to something. You with me, Grace? He's giving us a value statement on whatever is going to come next. 
We'll find out in just a moment what value he means his readers to assign to what, because you forgot what's up here already. You don't know that yet. You just know that the first part of this command is he's about to give you a value statement on something, and he wants you to assign that value to it. The main thing for us to see is that by calling his readers to count it, James is about to tell us God's priorities in relation to that thing so that we would make those priorities our own. That's what he means by count it, to give it a certain value. All right, that's the first term. Here's the second. The next key term is important, therefore, because it tells us what kind of value James means his readers to assign. What's he going to say? Assign this. Count it horrible. Count it ridiculous. Count it tremendous. Count it, we don't know yet, but the next term that he gives us tells us the value to assign to it. Well, we get another version of this in Philippians 3.8. Paul uses the same word to count, to declare, I count everything as loss. So, so where is James going to go? What are we to count something here? What value does James call us to assign to something in this passage? His next words, again, give us the answer. He commands his readers to count something as all joy. That's remarkable. That's a big deal. But what does it mean? What does it mean to count something as all joy? Well, that's a phrase that the New Testament uses two other times. In Romans 15, 13, after explaining the glory of God in choosing to include the Gentiles in his plan of salvation, Paul broke out in prayerful praise, exclaiming, May the God of hope, therefore, fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And it's Paul again who uses it in Philippians 2.29. After enduring a great deal of hardship in his gospel ministry, and knowing that the Philippians have to some degree as well, Paul decided to send Epaphroditus to serve the Philippian church, to be a blessing to them, to be a help to them. He commanded them, therefore, in sending Epaphroditus to receive him in the Lord with all joy. In these two passages, God's people are filled with all joy as a result of experiencing some exceptional blessing of God. The main point is that to count all something as all joy is to count it as of highest value, extremely valuable, extremely desirable. Clearly, James is about to tell his readers to place a high, high value on something. Whatever it is, again, you forgot, so you don't know yet. Whatever it is, it is meant to give them a kind of uninterruptible gladness. What do you think it's going to be, Grace? I can't wait, right? James is under the inspiration of God telling his readers to count something as all joy. Remarkable. All right. Well, before uh, revealing what it is that's to be considered all joy, James makes clear who he is speaking to. Not everyone is meant to consider this thing, whatever it is, all joy. Just a certain group of people. And the question then is, who? Who is supposed to do this? He tells us the third term, my brothers. As you probably know, to be a Christian is to have been adopted, which we say every every Sunday morning and in the, uh, at the end of the exhortation, the assurance of pardon. As you know, to be a Christian is to have been adopted into the family of God. Therefore, all Christians are spiritual brothers and sisters. We're all together in the family of God. 
For that reason, brothers was a term that the early church adopted to count that the early church adopted in reference to fellow Christians. It was to indicate believers in Jesus, fellow believers. In other words, James is not commanding non-Christians to count something as all joy. His command is only for those whose hope is in Jesus. Grace is your hope in Jesus. Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you an adopted son or daughter of God, a, a, a brother or sister in Christ? Well, then this, if so, this command is for you. There is something that you are meant to count as all joy. So Christians and only Christians. There's one more qualifier, the fourth term. Uh, There's one more qualifier to consider before we get to the thing that is to be counted all joy. James tells Christians when we ought to count a thing is all joy. So there's something coming. We're to place the highest value on it. But the question is when. That's important, right? There are certain things that we would call highly valuable, but only under at, at certain certain times. So we count winter coats and gloves as valuable, not in the summer, but only when it's cold out. We count life jackets as highly valuable. You ever see anybody wearing a life jacket, you know, at Walmart or something? That'd be weird, right? Not super valuable. But if they're drowning or if your boat capsizes or something like that, man, that's a that's a big deal. You want one of those, right? Skis, they don't do you a whole lot of good, uh, in a full three months of the year in Minnesota, but for nine months, you know, when there's snow, <clears throat> skis can be valuable. So knowing exactly when, James means for his readers, Christians, to count something as all joy is very important. Again, his answer is simple. All this is really straightforward. His answer is whenever you meet this particular thing, every time, every time you meet this particular thing, you are to count it as all joy, assign that value to it. We still don't know what it is, because you forgot, but we do know that what it, whatever it is, whenever we encounter it, we are to count it as all joy. This thing has no off-season. There is no time you will encounter this where you ought not consider it or count it as all joy. It has no off-season or time of partial joy. Every time we meet it, meet it to obey James is to have it fill us with fullness of joy. And what is this going to be? Can you wait? I mean, what are you thinking, kids? A puppy? I don't know. Like, that'd be cool, right? That's they're cute. And without further ado, then, what is the thing of perpetual value, of great value for all Christians? It's got to be something amazing. The answer is trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. That can't can't be right, but anybody have the Greek? It's got to mean something different. You know how, like, you read uh, when the New Testament talks about slaves, and you and then you then you do a little bit of a word study, and you realize a bond servant is definitely different than what comes to most of our minds when we when we think of slavery. Is it something like that? Is it is it in the Greek? It means something different than what we think? Nope. It means what you think it means, and maybe even a bit more. A trial is a challenging, often painful situation. It's a hardship. It is some difficult encounter. There is nothing in the words, etymology, 
that softens it or explains away the simple fact that James just commanded you and I and all who call on the name of Jesus at all times to count as all joy, all of the trials, the hardships that come our way. (laughs) I don't know. Is that seems like maybe that's not going to have the same legs as the prayer of Jabez or the same marketing power as some of the things you find in the Christian bookstores today. There must be something more than just that, right? This can't be this can't be it. This can't be what he means. What why would he command such a thing? If it if it means what we think it means or what it sounds like it means, why why would he command that? It doesn't it doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Well, there's one more term. There's a sixth term that we need to consider. Maybe maybe that'll get us out of some of the awkwardness that I seem to have gotten us into. It tells us what kinds of trials we're to count as all joy. We, we heard just a minute ago when we're to count certain trials, but the, maybe it's a maybe it's a really really narrow specific kind of trial that we're to count as all joy. Maybe that'll help us make sense out of this this last term out of this counterintuitive command. Is it every kind of trial or or just certain ones? Must be something. There must be something, right? Well, think back on the questions I asked at the very beginning. I think there were six, maybe seven of them. The point was to paint a picture of the different kinds of trials that I know many of you and and I have experienced. Draw those back to mind or some other trial that you've endured. Each represents a, a very specific kind, right? Did James have any of those in mind? Maybe, maybe none of, maybe none of those. Maybe it's something, something else. Well, here's the last term. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of, of various kinds. All Christians are to count each of the various kinds of trials that come our way as all joy. This means that James has in mind the big ones and the little ones. Trials from living in a fallen world and trials from being a fallen people. Trials brought upon us by the sins of others and trials brought upon us by our own sins. Passive trials and active trials, things done to us and things that we just came up that just came upon us. Trials in ordinary life and in ministry endeavors. Even in James's letter. Even in James's letter we'll see, we'll read of trials that his readers endured, the very people he's writing this command to at first. They had trials related to being exiled for their faith, living in poverty, being exploited in their poverty, being persecuted for their faith. Even in this letter, these people to whom he is writing experienced various trials of all sorts. Grace, to be clear, James just commanded all Christians to count all trials as all joy all of the time. Put that on a t-shirt. We'll get more people to come to grace. You know, this is this is going to be great. Just think about that for a minute. I don't mean to make light of it because I know some of you are in hard, hard, hard places. Think about it. Even on the surface, it's easy to see that this is a very different message than the one we're used to hearing, oftentimes even in the church. Virtually everything around us tells us the exact opposite. Count it all joy when you experience comfort is the way we often order our lives. It's the message we normally hear. The kind of joy that makes 
the, the, the lack of joy is, in our minds at least, what makes a trial a trial. <laughs> so that leaves us with the question of what in the world he's talking about. <laughs> How in the world would we do this? Why in the world would we obey this command? God through James is kind to answer that question over the next two verses. But let me say this. I want to say one more thing before we look at the second part of this passage. One more thing. Whatever, whatever the reason for the command, whatever the reason ends up being, we're going to see it in a second, whatever that, that reason ends up being, the very fact that James, under God's inspiration, tells us, the fact that he tells us to place a high value on something that almost none of us naturally value, ought to humble us and cause us to test our entire value system. That we're commanded to value trials means, even if we're not yet sure why, that our natural senses and wisdom are not sufficient to judge the value of a thing. Again, if there's something the Bible tells us, it's that. We don't look upon the world the same way the world looks upon the world. We, we need new eyes and new ears. We need a new value system. There is a distinctly Christian way to understand what kind of value things have. It tells us that we need supernatural senses and revelation to truly understand the worth of a thing in the world that God has made. We simply cannot live lives pleasing to God if we don't value what God values. And we need God's spirit and God's word to help us know what that is. So please remember that your common sense and your physical senses are not enough to discern the value of a thing all by itself Because when you can be commanded by God to esteem highly, to value highly, to count all joy, something like trials, it flips. It ought to to awaken you to a a flip that needs to to happen in your value system. Okay, with that, what's the reason behind this? Just as it's important to get the specifics of the command right, it's equally, if not more important, to get the reasoning behind it right. Right. And by God's grace, the reasoning is every bit as straightforward as the command itself. Look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. You have to have a trial in mind right now. Or someone in your life. That of someone in your life. You have to work through this with a real trial in mind. In simplest terms, James says that Christians are to count all trials as joy. Because God has great purposes for all of them. Purposes far greater than whatever pain the trials might bring. Okay, that's the general answer to the question. More specifically, though, among his great purposes, according to 3 and 4, are to grant three gifts to Christians that to treasure Christ is to long for more than any comfort in this life. And they are assurance of salvation, endurance and faith, and sanctification of our souls. God gives those three gifts through trials in a way you can't get any other way. And if Christ is your greatest treasure, getting these gifts through any means, any pain, any suffering, is worth it. Such sweet, sweet treasures these are to all who treasure Christ above all else. The assurance of salvation that comes, uh, the, the assurance of salvation comes from having our faith tested by trial and come and, and having it come out intact. How do you know if your faith is real? 
It, it's really hard to have joy in life if you never know for sure whether you're pleasing to God or not, whether you're really saved, what, what your real eternal destiny is. And so receiving the gift of assurance of salvation is what a, what a gift that is. And that comes exclusively in some ways through going through a trial and coming out on the other side faithful. Well, how do you know if you're even going to do that? <laughs> Trials are <laughs> the answer to that, too. How do you know if you're going to be able to make it through the trial? Well, a trial is a means that God gives to his people for building endurance, for keeping them, for holding them, for persevering their faith. The endurance or perseverance in faith comes from the steadfastness that God miraculously has put into the trials that he gives to his saints. Are you with me, Grace? How do you get big muscles? Well, you lift weights. It's just the byproduct. God has put magically into trials, graciously into trials, persevering grace. This is awesome. If you love Christ above all else, this is awesome. The sanctification comes as we let steadfastness through many trials do its purifying work. Do you want to be more like Jesus more than you want anything else? Do you want to continue to be transformed into his likeness? God has put special grace in trials to purify you, to sanctify you, to make you more pure, to make you more like Christ. Indeed, the ultimate end of the Christian life, the final saving work of God, is to make us perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And all of that comes in large measure, James tells us, through the refining work God does to us as we, by God's grace, faithfully endure the trials he sends to us, and that fills us with all joy. The bottom line is that Christians are not to consider the trials themselves as all joy, or they wouldn't actually be trials, but the greater assurance, endurance, and sanctifying work that God always does through them. We see this principle of counting trials as joy because they lead to a a greater good than whatever the pain the trial causes, modeled perfectly in Jesus. Listen to this, Grace. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the trial of the cross, despising the shame. Jesus was filled with all joy in the greatest trial any man has ever known, enduring the wrath of God on the cross because he knew the greater good that awaited him. And the the Hebrews passage, Hebrews 12.2, tells us what that was, namely that by doing so, he would be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We see this principle at work in Paul in Philippians 3.8, a a passage we read the beginning of earlier. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. In choosing to follow Jesus, Paul gave up everything he once counted as value, as valuable. His name, his reputation, his comfort, his financial stability, his education, his ministry training, his very career. And yet, compared to To the greater reward of knowing Jesus, the trial of losing all of that was as as nothing. We see it again in Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.4. He not only gave up his old gains, but took on new trials more than any of us will know. But what does he say about that, about these new trials? He says in all of our affliction as overflowing with joy. 
One commentator summed up the conviction underneath these passages like this. If you're going to write something down, write this down. Grace's worst is better than the world's best. Grace's worst is better than the world's best. How can we obey James? That is, how can we really know all joy in trials? James's answer is that we can do so only by understanding and believing with all that we have that every trial God's people have that in every trial God's people have nothing other than a doorway to a much greater good. Every every trial dollar you invest yields one million grace dollars in assurance, endurance, and sanctification. Grace, if assurance, endurance, and sanctification were the only only rewards that come from faithfully enduring trials, that would be enough. That would make sense. What James's command that seems so silly at first, it makes sense, even with, with simple assurance, endurance, and sanctification. But do you know this? The Bible is filled with promises of grace for the people of God who endure trials faithfully. Just listen to these. I'd really encourage you to look them up later, but right now, just let them wash over you. Listen to these, these trial promises of grace. James himself mentions another one in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. I don't even know what that is, but I want it. (laughs) And it comes to me and to you exclusively through remaining steadfast under trial, which God has promised to those who love him. We endure trials because in joy, or we read, We endure trials in joy and all joy because they lead to blessing from God and specifically the blessing of the crown of life. First Peter 4.16, Peter promises that if anyone suffers as a Christian, endures trials, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Grace, you were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And there is a unique way that you are able to glorify God to fulfill the very purpose that you exist. Through trials. That's where all joy comes from, is believing that, remembering that in the time of your trial. Paul wrote in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. We endure trials and joy because they are a gift granted by God. In Acts 5.41, we read of the, the response of several disciples who had just been imprisoned for their faith. Persecuted. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. We endure trials and joy because faithfulness through them demonstrates our worthiness before God. First Thessalonians 1.6, there Paul says to the Thessalonian believers, you receive the word. Grace, there is a way that the word of God comes to us uniquely through much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We endure trials and joy because there are some ways that we get the word of God exclusively through trials. In Matthew 5.10, Jesus promised, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We endure trials and joy because there is a way in which trials grant us citizenship in heaven. And grace, perhaps the greatest opportunity to count our trials as all joy 
comes from the certain knowledge that in Jesus Christ, none of them are a punishment for our sins. Every trial, every difficulty ought to be the beginning, the down payment of the everlasting torment that we deserve for our treason against God. But instead, all joy comes to us through trials and the remembrance that Christ was punished once for all of our sins. In other words, we're able to count our trials as joy. Think of your trials. Think of them right now. You are able to count them as all joy because they are, believe it or not, a reminder of the gospel. That however severe your trials are, they pale in comparison to what we deserve and Christ took for us. In the end, to truly appreciate and apply James's command to count all trials as all joy, it's to echo the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4.17. It means believing by the grace of God that this light momentary affliction, whatever, whatever that is, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. That's how the Bible talks. So James commands all Christians to count all trials, all joy, all of the time. How do we do that? I want to get, I want to land this plane in less than five minutes by being really specific. Three things, three steps. Number one, first, you fill your minds and, and your prayers with the trial promises of God. You can't count it all joy if you don't know the promises attached to the trials. We seek them out in God's word and, and we seek them out with the help of God's people. We study them, we pray over them, we memorize them, and we hide them in our hearts. We do these things so that second, so first you get the promises of God, of the grace of God that come to you exclusively through trials that are way beyond any pain you will ever endure in this life. You get them, you you pray for them, you study them, you know what they mean, you fight to believe them, you memorize them. And we do those things so that second, when a trial does come our way, you're walking along, you're pretty, you know, things are going pretty well and trial, right? You have these hidden in your heart and in your mind so that when they come our way, a trial comes our way, we are able instantaneously with the help of the Holy Spirit to draw those promises to mind and allow them to rush over us and overwhelm us with the goodness of God and the plans that he has for us in this thing, whatever it is however big it is on this earth. And third, if there's a gap, though, between the trial and the flooding in of the joy that God means us to have through believing his promises, third, what do we do? How do we, how, how do we get to be glad in trial? Third, if there's a gap between the trial coming into our lives and the joy James commands, we call on our brothers and sisters in Christ to remind us of these promises, to pray them over us and to sing them over us and to wait on the Lord with us through them. So here's the thing, Grace. Even if you're neck deep right now in a trial, without having known these promises or without having clung to these promises, it's not too late. Maybe it's because you're not a Christian. And you didn't even know any of this was part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or maybe it's because you are a Christian and you didn't know this. Or maybe it's because you are a Christian and you forgot. You got caught up in your own thinking and wisdom. It's not too late. Are you in a trial? Are you in a trial? But in that trial, are you marked more by sadness, grief, bitterness, doubt, than joy? Are you? 
Does your response to your trials currently look more like one who does not have the promises of God than one who does? Jesus died to forgive you of your failure to obey James. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not an idea. It's not a tip for having your best life now. This is a command. To disobey it is to sin against God and to deserve everlasting conscious torment. Jesus died to forgive you of your failure to obey James's command, to give you the Holy Spirit to help you understand and believe the word of God. Look to Jesus today. Be forgiven of all of your sins, not just this one. Receive the Holy Spirit to strengthen you for all that God requires of you. Let's fight, Grace. Let's do this together. Let's fight together with all that we have to believe what is true and secured by the cross of Jesus Christ. And let's fight together to share this good news to the ends of the earth with every weak and broken and suffering soul that they too might know the fullness of joy that they were made for and that is offered to them and all who will believe in the name of Jesus.